We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. Louis Diggs, always careful not to call himself a historian because he had not trained in history, is credited with doing more to chronicle the history of African Americans in Baltimore County than anyone had done before. Diggs died last October at age 90. Adrian Jones, the first black speaker of the Maryland House of Delegates, remembered him as, quote, a friend, a prolific writer, and a scholar of African American history, heritage, and culture. His passing is a devastating loss, but his influence and voice will echo throughout Baltimore County for years to come, close quote. Fifteen years ago this month, I sat down with Louis Diggs in a WYPR studio to learn what had gotten him started chronicling the black history of Baltimore County. Diggs already had retired from 20 years in the Army and a second career in human resources in the D.C. public schools when his sons persuaded him he would be a good role model for their former classmates at Catonsville High School. I was talked into being a substitute teacher which I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. And once I was teaching this class in How to Research Your Roots, Genealogy, and the kids wanted also a class on how do you tell about your community? So I I got permission to teach this class. And do you know when the class was over, and that was a whole semester, the boys, oh, not the boys, the children that came off the Winters Lane community, when they turned their papers in, they could put nothing about the history of their community. The white kids, the kids from other places, they had good history on their communities. The black kids had nothing. And they said, Mr. Diggs, we went to the Catonsville Library. We went to the Catonsville Historical Society. We could find nothing on our community. And they were so disappointed. And they asked me if I could help them find their history. Now, I am not from Baltimore County. I'm from Baltimore City. It just happened that I had met a young lady from Catonsville who I fell in love with, and I fell in love with Catonsville. It was such a nice place to rear your family. Diggs said he couldn't say no to the kids, so he set out to see what he could learn about the Winters Lane community where he had lived for decades. So the first thing I did was I found some families, African-American families in Catonsville, whose ancestors had been there since the 1800s. And I only found four families that um, that sort of went along with what I was going to do. I wanted them to come to the library and talk to the children about their family, how they came there, what they did, you know, about their, about their lives. So these four families, they all gave me their history and I put it all in the computer. And the day we had the activity at the library, I gave them this little sheets so they could read from. And it really went over beautifully. The kids were so pleased to know that many of the African Americans had been there since the 1800s. And then I found a picture, a picture that I have in the first book that I published of these slaves rolling hog's head of tobacco down a rolling road to the ships that were in the uh, Patapsco River waiting to haul the tobacco to England, where they would sell it. This was a picture that was dated in 17, a drawing rather, in in 1760. And this led me to a tremendous story about, you know, 
why, where they get their tobacco from, uh, about the ships coming way up. They had never seen ships in, in this part of the Patapsco River. So um, the kids liked the picture because it said, well, at least we were here since 1760. That was, that was a good point for the kids. Anyhow, the families all talked about him and about their families, and the children really enjoyed it. The Catonsville Public Librarian Diggs was working with suggested he look into the role churches had played in the community. And I said, well, that's, that's an idea. So I did that. I went to all of the churches. And they were about, at that time, there were about 10 African-American churches in the Winters Lane community. And I was shocked to find that because the community is not a very large community. And uh, back then, in the old days, now I'm back really into Civil War, pre-Civil War days, that, um, or shortly after uh, Civil War, that people, there were just not many people there. How many, I don't really know, but there were not many. Any other these 10 churches. So all 10 of them agreed with me to share their history, gave me their history, and I typed it all up, and they had someone come to the library. Then not only did I have the high school students, I had the middle school or junior high school students, and they just talked about the history of the churches, and that really went over extremely well. And I just did that over and over for the schools, for the social and civic organizations. And I had just accumulated an awful lot of uh, material. The librarian said when it was all over and these little happy children, now that they had the history, the librarian said, Lewis, you really should put that in a booklet form somewhere. That booklet in 1995 became Lewis Diggs' first book of Baltimore County history. It was titled, It All Started on Winter's Lane, A History of the Black Community in Catonsville, Maryland, edited by Linda D. Stone. This is on the record on WYPR. I'm Sheila Cast, listening back to a conversation I had in 2008 with Diggs, who died last fall. In all, he wrote eight books about the history of black people in the county. That first one, Winter's Lane, was a learning experience. He said the grants he got from the Maryland Humanities Council and a state folklorist covered only part of the cost. So they permitted me to sell this book for, I think it was $3, and... The day I had my talk at the Catonsville Historical Society, the Sun paper wrote this article about this African-American man had written a book on the historic African-American community of Winters Lane. And they said it was something like the first book that's known about African-American communities in Baltimore County. The place was packed and jammed, packed and jammed. They were, they were outside, they were everywhere to hear this story about Winters Lane community. The book sold immediately, absolutely immediately. I and my wife, we were carried away with the fact that uh, the little children from the schools that came with their $3 in their hands that wanted this little bit of history. It really, it really moved me somewhat and my wife. And I then went back and of course I've had many, many reprints on this particular book, an extremely popular book. Uh, primarily because the book went really in-depth about the Winter Lane community. It talked about things like an African-American man who wanted to help his fellow man, African-American man, men in the community to be able to buy their own homes. 
Diggs recounted how the Catonsville Cooperative Corporation was started in 1890. Charles Woodland was one of the founders. He convinced the men to take their 50 cents and their dollars and to pull it into this Catonsville Cooperative Corporation. And it worked. It worked around the early 1900s. The first thing they did was build uh, an amusement park on Winters Lane called Greenwood Electric Park. And this amusement park drew people from everywhere. Some of the white people that I interviewed or talked with from the Winters Lane community mentioned that they remember the very old people. They remember the streetcar would come up Emerson Avenue and continually drop African Americans off from the city at the Winters Lane, and it would proceed on up to the junction and stay until late that night and take them back. Well, the men and the families began to make money. Not only did they build the Green Electric Park, they built a store, they began to build homes. And if you look into the history of the Winters Lane community, there are some African-American homes that were built in the 1800s. But the average house along Winters Lane began to be owned by African-Americans around 1910. And that was, I believe, is because they began to make money from their investments. Uh, oh, they built clubs, the little nightclubs like uh, Casino Garden. Uh, on the ground there today sits a really huge uh, Morningstar Baptist Church. But when it was built, it bought the best entertainment, African-American entertainment, that Baltimore had to offer. During those days, along the eastern seaboard, the entertainers would come from New York, working their way down the eastern shore, and they would stop off and entertain at the Royal Theater on Pennsylvania Avenue. And then they would come out to Catonsville, and they would just, crowds of people would come out to enjoy this entertainment. And, I mean, it was just, I mean, the, the structure of the community was really beginning to grow. Diggs' careful research shows how different threads of communities wove together. He talked about the weekly paper Samuel Torcell had written for the Grace AME Church in Catonsville, the same church Diggs himself later attended. And he just talked about families and who visited them and everything about families. Is, this is a genealogy treasure. And what he did with each of his papers that he'd written for maybe 30, 40 years, the back page he offered the African-American entrepreneur, the ability to, uh, uh, you know, show their goods and services. And, I mean, it just began to grow and grow and grow. And all of that is in this particular book, How an African-American Community Began. So, I mean, this really set the tone for these 39 other historic communities that I had just found out about. I had no idea that there were 40 designated historic African-American communities and could not understand why one was unable to go to the library and find information about these communities. There was nothing ever written about African-American life in Baltimore County. That's Lewis Diggs, who did write about African-American life in Baltimore County. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. We're listening back to the conversation I had with him 15 years ago when I asked about his legacy. Within Baltimore County, of course, I said I've written these. Actually, it's eight books. The ninth book was something special that I will explain to you about. But I went through all 40 of these historic communities and pulled out what information, historical information that I could. I sought out seniors, the really 
those are the ones I was really searching for. I, my interest was not so much in today's uh, Quaker Bottom Road or, or Moncton or Cuba Road or Foothill in Cockeysville. I wanted to know what it was like before the Civil War, during the Civil War, and after the Civil War. And to give you an idea with how many communities, let's say before and during the Civil War, um, uh, Vaughn Green, a funeral establishment, a very large establishment in uh, Baltimore County, asked me if I could help them do their 2008 calendar. And I suggested that why not show the churches in Baltimore County that were here during the slavery era? And there are 13 such churches, starting with 1799, clear through to 1865. And as you know, slaves don't build churches. The free blacks were building the churches. So there were free blacks doing all of that, uh, that particular time frame. What's, what surprised you most as you started researching these communities in Baltimore County? I think the thing that really surprised me when I was all done with everything, that's the role that Methodism played in the development of these communities. Every one of the communities, these 40 historic communities, began with a church. And every church was a Methodist church. Only one of the communities... I think only one that I encountered did not have a church, and that was Halethorpe, and that was only because they were right on Washington Boulevard. When people built there, they were able to take the bus into Baltimore, so they went back to their regular churches. But every other church has a Methodist church, and I thought that was amazing. I must do a book on the role that Methodism played in the development of these communities. That was about one of the key things that I, I discovered. Is anybody picking up this work from you? I hope so. I hope so. I do know that there are people in Turner Station, uh, when I went there to uh, document their history, they have picked up, there have been at least two other books written about Turner Station, one on the schools and one on the churches, and they went a little more in-depth than I did on the book that I wrote about Turner Station called From the Meadows to the Point. And because the reason I said... uh, I, I couldn't write too much is because after my second book, Baltimore County began to have an interest in what I was doing. And from the second book to the eighth book, a third book to the eighth book, they have provided me with very generous grants to ensure that I'm able to publish my work. You know, it take me a year to a year and a half to work it out, cost me a lot of money, and to come up with eight, ten thousand dollars to publish the book I simply didn't have. So Baltimore County provided those fundings for me. And I thought that was neat. Is there history lost? Are there things you're trying to find out that you can't find out? Oh, yes, yes. I know I just scratched the surface, Uh, believe me. Like when I went to the northern part of Baltimore County, the African-American communities were so spread apart from Towson, north of Towson, up to the Pennsylvania line. Uh, You know, I would go to one community, let's say Quaker Bottom Road in Sparks, Maryland. And the next community, it may be 30 miles from there in the, in the woods somewhere, uh, you know, like Cuba Road or, or, uh, or uh, Moncton up on Troyer Road or Big Falls Road in Harefoot. 
I mean, they had just spread out all over the place. It took them almost two years to finish those communities up there. So, I, you know, and when I got a grant, you know, a grant has a beginning date and an ending date. So I only had maybe that year to uncover as much uh, historical information that I could. And so I know I didn't get it all. However, I am hoping and praying that it may not happen anytime soon, but uh, it's not going to take another 200 years for someone to be able to go into these black communities and document their history like it, it, it took for me to do it. Uh, they will have a starting point, and they can then pick up from what information that I've accumulated in my eight books. The late Lewis Diggs on how he came to write about the experiences of black residents of Baltimore County, an exhibit in Freedom's Name, co-curated by Diggs and by Dr. Glenn T. Johnston of Stevenson University, is now on display at several sites in Annapolis. Another place Lewis Diggs' legacy lives on is the museum in Granite, Maryland, named for Diggs and another historian, Lester Johnson. It preserves the story of black Marylanders who worked in the quarries of western Baltimore County and of 40 African-American communities in the county. We'll link to the museum and to the page at the Historical Society of Baltimore County with excerpts from an oral history with Diggs. Short break on the record. When we're back, desegregating the military. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. Long before Lewis S. Diggs settled in Catonsville and made himself the go-to authority on black history in Baltimore County, the first writer to focus on how African Americans shaped the county and it shaped them, he grew up on Stricker Street in West Baltimore. He dropped out of Frederick Douglass High School in his senior year to join the Maryland National Guard, just about the time the U.S. entered its first military action of the Cold War, supporting the Republic of Korea to repel the invasion by North Korea. Diggs died last fall at age 90. We're listening back to a conversation I had with him in 2008. My unit, which is the 231st Transportation Truck Battalion, with three truck companies, we were ordered to active duty for the Korean War. This was an all-black unit? All-black unit. Our uh, commander was a lieutenant colonel, African-American. His name was Vernon F. Green. Um, with these three truck companies, when we were ordered to active duty, uh, we were the only Maryland National Guard unit ordered to active duty. And when we were sent to um, uh, Camp Edwards, Massachusetts for training, uh, most of the older guys had gotten out, those with children and so forth. And it really left just a bunch of guys like myself, 17, 18-year-old boys who had just joined the Guard and didn't know how to drive these big trucks. But it ended up, before 1950 came to a close, the battalion was split. One of the units, the 147th Truck Company, was sent to Germany. The 165th Truck Company was sent to Fort Eustis, Virginia. The company that I was in, the 726th Truck Company, we were sent to Korea with a battalion headquarters. When we arrived in Korea, December 1950, there was this tremendous need for uh, truck drivers because the communists had pushed the P-51 
people all the way back to Pusan, and units had to shift these people where the front line was going. My unit, the 726 Truck Company, was the very first United States National Guard unit to set foot in Korea to support the war, and that was extremely historic. Uh, we were assigned to the 1st Cavalry Division, and I tell you, Sheila, if you would have seen these trucks, we, when we got off of this ship, it was December 31st, 1950, and they had these Big old two-and-a-half-ton, six-by-six trucks that were used during World War II, they were encased in ice. They were encased in ice. This was December, and they don't call Korea frozen chosen for no reason. My God, it's the coldest place in the world. Somehow, trucks were started, and off we went. And, boy, we learned extremely fast on how to drive these trucks and how to function during, during the war. And we did that for two years. Even after the armistice halted fighting in Korea in July 1953, Diggs Truck Company remained deployed. However, when the unit did come back in 1955, the adjutant general at the time wanted the unit to become segregated again. We were integrated in 1951 in Korea. The whole army was integrated then. The officers rebelled. They were not going to go back as a segregated unit. After petitions and lobbying, Diggs said, Governor Theodore R. McKeldin desegregated the Maryland National Guard in 1955. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. Diggs spent 20 years in the Army, then earned associate, bachelor's, and master's degrees, and worked as assistant to the personnel director of the Washington, D.C. public schools. As Diggs developed the skills of a historian, he looked into the backstory of that black unit in the Maryland National Guard. He learned that in 1879, the monumental city guard had been a prestigious black drill team. It was a military club, and they competed with other black military clubs, uh, like the Baltimore Rifles, and there was a group in Hagerstown, and there was a group in Washington, D.C. And I do believe that a lot of these older guys came from the United States Colored Troops during the Civil War. You know, men do like marching and drilling and competing with each other, and that's what they were doing. But the Monumental City Guards, those guys were so good that the Merlin National Guard in 1882 inspected them, loved the way that they soldiered, and accepted them into the Merlin National Guard as a separate company. They would not integrate the Guard. Separate company, black officers, black enlisted men. Do you know they called these men to active duty during the Spanish-American War? During World War I, they fought in France. World War II, they ended up in Hawaii. And when the Korean War broke out, they converted the, from a company, an infantry company, to this truck battalion. And that's when I got involved. So I've decided that after I had gathered all this information, I was not going to die with this information in my brain. So I wrote a book called The Forgotten Road Warriors, and I talked, I showed the history from 1879 through 1955 when they were integrated. So that's the history of this particular unit? Yes, ma'am. The history of the Maryland of that. National Guard. Mm-hmm. And that's get, my ninth book. And the name of the unit is? The 231st Transportation Truck Battalion. Now, I am president of the veterans of the 231st. We make an attempt to keep our history alive. We go to schools, churches, uh, senior centers, anywhere to talk about the history, that the, the contributions that African-American men have made to their city, state, and country 
uh, right from Baltimore. The late Louis Diggs, chronicler of black history. When we spoke 15 years ago in February 2008, I asked his thoughts about a month devoted to black history. Believe me, I am not for this Black History Month at all. Uh, as a child, I recall uh, Black History Week or uh, Negro History Week, I think it was called back in the 40s. Uh, this is American history, and I just don't believe that we should uh, look for one month out of a year to celebrate it. I don't see us celebrating any other uh, groups at any particular time. This is American history, and I just feel that it should be... Um, Celebrate it all year long. Celebrating black history is what Lewis Diggs did. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow. Mm-hmm.